Uh, Lord, thank you as we come now to your word that you minister to us. Give us open ears, uh, receptive hearts. For we pray this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Uh, keeping going in the Christian life, on the Christian journey, is what we're thinking about this morning. And I wonder, when I say that phrase, keeping going, and you keeping going with Jesus, keeping going until the end, how that makes you feel today. Um, I wonder if it feels, fills you with a sense of, sure, I'm not quite sure how that is going to happen. Um, I know myself, I know life, I know the knocks that come my way, I know my struggles and my doubts. I wonder how I'm going to keep going. Maybe you feel like you're on top of it. Uh, maybe you feel like uh, the journey so far has been okay. Um, and you feel like you're on a positive uh, trajectory. Um, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, which is in many ways a sermon, as we've said, is very concerned that those who have started with Jesus keep going. And what frames his thinking is that um, coming to Jesus is not a point-in-time thing. So much of the way that we formatted the sharing of the gospel and evangelism has told us the lie that coming to Jesus is a point-in-time thing. It's that moment of conversion. It's the moment that you accept Jesus into your heart or whatever phrases are used. Um, important as that is, the writer of the Hebrews wants us to know it's a journey. And there are tenses of salvation. There is the redemption, the salvation that has come to you definitively the moment that somebody comes to Jesus, places their trust in him, says, yes, the promises of God in Jesus, those are true, and they are true for me. And then there is the journey that is in between, and, and the writer is very concerned about that, but he's concerned about it, and this is his focus this morning, in the light of the end of the journey, uh, that you don't actually get anywhere if you don't make it all the way to the end. He is very concerned that we keep going right up until that point. And so I hope our ears are tuned in to how he's going to help us with that this morning. First up, and there are sheets that will help you with a, a kind of a broad outline. Uh, first point is this, fear falling short of God's promised rest through unbelief. Fear falling short of God's promised rest through unbelief. Um, rest is a word that occurs ten times in the verses that Jeremy has just read for us. It's a, it's a dominant repeated idea and he's doing that to highlight it. This is what is uh, front and center for him. Uh, verse 1, therefore while the promise of entering his rest stands. Uh, or verse 3, for we have believed, for we have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, for he has spoken somewhere the seventh day in this way, God rested, etc., etc. Ten times uh, again and again, and we'll say more about what rest means uh, specifically, but here's a, a working definition for us. Rest is being in God's place with God. It is enjoying life with God in God's place, life as it should be. Uh, and the focus, uh, as it was last week, is um, on not falling short of that rest, or as he puts it in verse 1, um, failing to reach it. Uh, so Christian salvation is that journey. It has a start, it has a middle, uh, and he is concerned that we should make sure that we reach the end. The whole point of the journey is to reach the end. There's no point in starting unless you reach the finish. I remember Denzel Abrams, who's known to uh, some of you uh, here, who used to be at um, St. James. I remember him speaking of attempting the Comrades Ultramarathon 
and how uh, that experience went down, how brutal it was, how he started, how he got most of the way through the race, but then he got to a point where he could just not put one foot in front of the other anymore, and he stopped. And I remember him saying that, uh, that the most depressing place in the world he discovered that day was sitting on that bus. There's a bus, the sweeper bus, that comes and collects all of the people who've fallen by the wayside and it takes them back to the start or whatever the case may be. All of the people who had not made it to the finish, after all the training, the anticipation, the effort of the day to be sitting on that bus, he said it was the most depressing place in the world. And in the journey of faith, our writer says, well, that is not just depressing, it is tragic. For in the race of faith, there are no do-overs or second attempts. You know, Denzel, a couple of days later, maybe even as he's sitting on that depressing bus, maybe he was thinking, yeah, I wonder where wrong went wrong. Maybe if I train a bit differently, maybe if I think differently about my nutrition on the day, maybe in a sports psychologist, maybe different conditions, I'll stand a chance of getting a favorable result. But actually, in the race of faith, there is no next time. Uh, that is it. You're done. And so verse 1, while the promise of rest stands, let us fear, lest any of you should have uh, seemed to have failed to reach it. Uh, that's, a, that's a similar warning to last week. Um, uh, it's going a step further. Maybe it's, a, it's an uncomfortable step for us. Last week, uh, verse 12, he says, take care that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. And that's in line with the accumulated exhortations and warnings that have been coming to us in Hebrews so far. Uh, like chapter 2, verse 1, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Or chapter 2, verse 3, don't neglect the great salvation. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8, don't harden your heart. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care against an unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another um, every day. Uh, this time he says, fear unbelief in God's promises that leads you to fall short of God's rest. Uh, the, new, the NIV, the New International Version, if that's the Bible that you've got in front of you, um, it doesn't say fear, it says be careful. Uh, that is softening something that shouldn't be softened. Uh, the word there is phobomai. It's, it's the word from which we get phobia or fear. The word is fear. And maybe we get a bit uncomfy when we hear that. What precisely are we to fear? I don't think verse 1 tells us. I think verse 1 tells us the consequences of not fearing. Uh, which is that we would fall short. But the question is, what should we fear? Uh, the answer is the thing that will stop you from getting to God's rest. Uh, see if you can spot it as I read either side of uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, so verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Or chapter 4 verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Uh, what is it that we are to fear? We are to fear unbelief. We are to fear letting go of God's promises. 
unbelief in the promises of God's rest in Jesus. Uh, we get a bit twitchy, don't we, when, um, when fear is put out there as a motivator. We're told that we're not to do that as parents, we're not to, to parent our children you know, by fear, that's, that's retrograde, it's a step backwards. Um, in a previous age, somebody like Jonathan Edwards, who is a pastor theologian, a great pastor theologian in the 18th century, part of the, the way in which God started the Great Awakening there, he preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, warning about the consequences of rebelling against God. He spoke in a calm voice, apparently he deliberately it was all fully scripted and he deliberately read it out um, quite matter-of-factly so that there would be no manipulation, no emotions, all about the danger of rebelling against God and then deserving God's judgment. And in the course of his sermon, he illustrated it by saying, imagine that the floor would open up here and you would be swallowed up and taken into a Christless eternity. And apparently people, although there was no emotional hype there, um, went to the pillars of the building and grabbed onto the pillars because they imagined really the floor opening up and they were clinging on for dear life out of fear. And I wonder if you read out that uh, sermon in churches today, how that would go down. I think people would walk out, you'd get some uh, stick on social media for not preaching about the love of God. Surely that is the motivation for keeping going. And doesn't, doesn't the Bible say... Uh, that faith is supposed to drive out fear. Well, let me say that those two things, uh, love and fear, they are not opposed. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, a loving person can use fear as a legitimate motivator if the thing that should be feared represents a real danger. And we know that with parenting. You know, parents will do that. They might even raise their voice to get the points across. Any loving parent will not want their four-year-old to go anywhere near the road without mom or dad there to hold their hands. Putting fear into them. Well, that's not manipulation because there is a real danger and it is not unloving. And unbelief in God's promises leading to falling away, well, it is real danger. And so Jesus in the Gospels warns us uh, of things that we are to fear, as does the rest of the New Testament, as the, does the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12 is going to major on that, but also here. And so how do we make sense of this fear? I think the clue is in something that the writer has already said about fear, chapter 2, verse 14, probably on the same page uh, that we're in. And partway through the sentence, he says, Jesus took on flesh in order to die, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And then verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so Jesus through his death, well he's delivered Christians from fear of death. And death is a catch-all for everything that stands against you. Sin, death and the devil stand against you. And Jesus has come and through his death has defeated that so that you no longer subject to that fear. In the face of everything that stands against you, no fear. So that now, chapter 4 verse 1, uh, the only thing to fear is the unbelief that would detach you from the one who has defeated everything that you should fear. That is a sensible fear, isn't it? And the one who would detach you from... The thing that would detach you from trusting those promises, which is unbelief. Now, a question you should ask it, well, is that fear 
are concerned with fear is he is he is Tanya and he's speaking it's good to have Tanya with us this morning the question is is that fear a paralyzing fear because that's how we think of it. We think, don't use fear as a motivator because it's going to leave you paralyzed. It's going to dominate your life. It, does this fear do that? And the answer is no. It is a fear that sets you free to live fearlessly. And so here's the, the take home. When you wake up uh, and when you go to bed and at moments during the day, make this your prayer. Lord, would you deliver me from unbelief? so that I would be delivered from all of the other fear, ultimately the fear of death. Restore the joy of my salvation. Return my confidence in your promises, Jesus. It is right to fear unbelief. Uh, secondly, because the promise of rest still stands today. The promise of rest still stands today. Uh, the meaty middle of this passage, um, it's a walkthrough of the history of rest to make the point that the ultimate rest is in heaven and therefore it still lies ahead of us and therefore it is still on offer and therefore you should keep going. Uh, I guess if you think you've already arrived at rest um, or you think that it is not going to happen, well that is going to leave you falling short uh, of true rest. But heaven does still lie ahead of us is the author's point. Uh, the walkthrough starts with creation in verse uh, 3, second part of verse 3 and verse 4. Let me read it. Now, this is rest in creation. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, that's God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Uh, that tells us two things about rest, doesn't it? Um, firstly, God is at rest. Heaven is ultimate rest. Heaven is the place where God is. And since the completion of creation, God is at rest. That's why he calls it in verse 3, my rest. It is God's rest. And secondly, uh, not only is God at rest, but rest was the goal of all of creation. Uh, that is why God created everything. That creation and humanity, uh, the pinnacle, who is the pinnacle of creation that we should enjoy rest with God. And he is able to offer rest to everybody who will come with him and lay down their burdens. Our rest is to be with the God who is at rest. That is Genesis. That is the beginning. That is the purpose of everything. But then from verse 5 to 8, he summarizes the Old Testament history of God's people. And he's, and he's doing a status check. Throughout the history of God's people, have we arrived yet at that rest? at God's rest. And um, uh, very obviously we saw last week uh, the wilderness generation who listened to the ten spies. Well, they didn't enter the rest. And so verse 5 uh, from Psalm 95 is, uh, which, sorry, verse 5 in our passage here, which is from Psalm 95, it's describing them. Uh, they shall not enter my rest. They're the ones who died in the desert. They died short of the promised land. But then what the author does is he goes on to refer to David in verse 6 and 7. Uh, verse 7, we're told it was David who wrote Psalm 95. That's interesting because I don't think we're told 
are we told that in Psalm 95? You can check that. It's a miktam, isn't it? Hmm. You can check me on that. Um, but it's interesting that we're told here that it was written by um, David. And at the time that he wrote it, the next generation of God's people, the people that he was writing to in Psalm 95, well, they were very much in the land. Uh, they were in the glory days of Israel in the land, the time of David and Solomon. And David says at that time to the people of Israel, today, right now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts to God's promises because, verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. Uh, do you see the point? Even in David's day, the rest lies ahead and therefore the invitation remains open. They had not yet arrived, which is exactly what verse 8 says. For if Joshua, he was one of the two faithful spies who led them into the land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken, like he does in Psalm 95, saying the rest remains ahead of you. Canaan, uh, under David and Solomon, where it, was, it, it was the high point in the history of Israel. It was a land of peace, it was a land of rest, it was a land of great blessing for Israel it, compared to everything else in their history. But the writer is telling us, based on what David said, that was just a pit stop along the way to ultimate rest. At best, it was a picture of the ultimate rest, the real rest, which is life to the full with God in God's place. Uh, you could sum all of what we just said by saying uh, God's rest existed before the promised land and God's rest existed after the promised land. And so he's done his Old Testament tour and now we see his conclusion, verse 9. So then, speaking to the people of his day 2,000 years ago, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The promise of the seventh day, the goal of creation still stands. It still stands today as we read the letter to the Hebrews. As he writes to us today, there remains a rest ahead of us for you and for me. Uh, I guess it's important in anything, in any kind of endeavor uh, which lasts more than a few minutes, to be clear on what you are aiming for, to know the end points so that you keep persevering and so that you know when you've arrived you know, when you haven't yet arrived and therefore still need to keep going. Um, one of the most disturbing things I've ever watched is um, the Backyard Ultra. I, I might have mentioned it before. It's also known as the race that never stops. I think Darren's going to attempt a, a, a half triathlon later this year. The, the good thing about the triathlon is there's very defined distances, and Darren can tell you how, how far he has to swim and run and, uh, and cycle. Uh, but the, the race that never stops, invented by a guy called Gary Cantrell in the States, set it up in his backyard. He's got a big backyard, happens to have like a forest in it. And he set up the seven-kilometer route. And you basically just have to run laps. Uh, one lap per hour, and the next hour you run another lap. Uh, the thing is that there is no finish line. Um, you run until you cannot run anymore. Um, and therefore, there's only one person who actually finishes, which is the last person standing, and that person is the winner. It's kind of, I guess Gary Cantrell was somebody who loved watching people suffer immensely. Uh, we need to be able to fix our eyes on the sights, uh, or fix our sights on the end. Uh, I guess equally problematic would be if you're running a regular race, you know how far 
the thing is, maybe Darren in his triathlon, and then 10K is right from the end. Somebody set up this amazing gantry with a huge finish sign and the tape, and Darren breaks the tape, and he's like, this is amazing. And chills and the lactic acid sets in, and then he realized, actually, that wasn't really the finish. Now, we need to know what we're aiming for um, so we can frame the journey. And here is what you're aiming for when it comes to God's rest. God is at rest. It's what the purpose of creation is for. They never got there during the history of Israel. Well, here are Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's rest still has a location. But the location is not a place, it is a person. It is Jesus who gives us that rest. I will give you rest. He gives us the rest, but he is also the rest. Now come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, that is the assurance. You start the journey with Jesus. You have come to a point of rest, and yet it is a journey. It is not a point in time. It is it is something that looks forward to the time when you will enjoy his rest with him in that place of the new creation. Revelation 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, meaning those who hold fast to the promises of Jesus by faith. They will rest from their labor. You see, the future element of keeping going. And so rest is uh, found in Jesus. You have it now if you've obeyed the voice of Jesus, his call. Uh, but it also lies ahead. He is the start, he is the middle, and he is the end of the race. And I wonder if, if we need to keep setting our sights on the end of the race. came across um, something written by uh, St. Augustine in the city of, uh, his book, The City of God, which is just quite striking as a meditation, a reflection, to fill our imagination with the end goal. We shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall know. We shall know and we shall love in our end, which is no end. All shall be. Amen. Uh, and Augustine is, uh, uh, just as a writer, he's speaking to people who have come to rest come to Jesus for rest, and he is urging them to keep going until the end. Fear the unbelief that would stop you from entering that rest with him. If you have drifted from Jesus and his promises, if you have taken a wrong turn, well, then you need to come back. Uh, when you drift in future, as you will, come back. As C.S. Lewis put it uh, like this in his case for Christianity. It speaks very direct, directly to us when we are drifting. He says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be, nearer to the finish line. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer to it. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road, in this case, back to the promises of Jesus. And in that case, the man who turns around soonest is the most progressive man. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. We're on the wrong road. If that is so, 
Going back is the quickest way on. The rest lies ahead. If we're drifting, turn around. And thirdly, uh, and finally, God's word is his powerful means to secure his people for rest. God's word is his powerful means to secure his people for rest. Um, Verse 11 is like a bracket with verse 1. There's a twin exhortation, and all of the material kind of before and after is the reasons why we should do what verse 1 and verse 11 are telling us to do. Fear and belief, so that you make sure you get to the end. Uh, Verse 11 uh, kind of has uh, the same logic in different language. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Uh, Again, uh, like verse 1, you might think, well, that's a little bit surprising. And I wonder if you imagine that that perseverance to the end in the Christian journey would be hard work. And the writer is saying, well, it is. It involves striving. It means applying your effort with every sinew strained, like what we're going to see Wade Fernikirk doing in under a month's time at the World Athletics Championships six years ago, um, suffered an injury that uh, probably should have ended his career, but six years of pain and hard work, and on that day we're going to see him straining with every muscle and sinew and ligament, hopefully all holding intact to get to the end. Um, It's if persevering with Jesus doesn't feel like hard work, that we should start to be concerned. Uh, All of us have to heed the call of verse 11. Put in every effort so that you do not fall by the side of the road. And I think then what verse 12 and 13 are doing is they're there to give us uh, a reason why we should strive and give us ammunition, give us help in how to strive. Uh, The reason why we should strive is because of what the Word of God does. So the Word of God, I mean, he uses quite a a graphic illustration, doesn't he, in verse 12. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which is to say that it cuts through and exposes what is really going on on the inside, spiritually speaking. Uh, Mark and Janet were talking the other day about a about a blade, they'll have to correct me on this because I'll get the medical stuff all wrong, right? But um, they were in the research lab and, um, and they had to take, I don't know, take fine microscopic slithers of material to be testing and, um, and there was this blade which is like specially engineered, I don't know, probably in Switzerland, like even got diamonds in it or something. Um, uh, because, it, and it's, it's ridiculously sharp. And apparently protocol in the lab was, if this thing falls, like falls off the table for any reason, for heaven's sake, let it fall on the floor. Don't stick your hand out to try to catch it because it'll take your hand off, right? And every instinct in you is to catch something that's falling. Try and resist um, that instinct. Well, that blade and the sharpness of that blade is the analogy that the writer applies to the Word of God. That is what the Word of God does. It it can cut through anything. And therefore, it is able to discern what is lying underneath. And what it cuts through, verse 12, what it pierces in a way that nothing else can, is the division of soul and spirit. And he likens it to, to cutting through joint, cutting through the hard bone, to expose the marrow that is on the inside. 
What does it mean to cut through between soul and spirit? Because we tend to think those words are, kind of mean the same thing, right? And I think part of our confusion comes from how those words are understood today. In our world today, we tend to understand like the majority of people as being spiritual, right? Everybody's spiritual. Um, Sophie's sister works in the, the NHS in England, and in patient care they talk about very different types of spirituality and how holistic patient care means engaging with that spirituality, which I thought was quite progressive, quite in- encouraging, until we read the definition of spirituality. And spirituality was so broad as to, you know, I guess dilute it significantly. Spirituality includes faith, but it also includes art, it includes nature, it includes pets, it includes your work, you know, whatever. So the majority of people the world considers to be spiritual. When it comes to souls, we get a little bit more twitchy about using that language in our culture today because that kind of has religious connotation, right? So we don't, we, everybody's spiritual, uh, not many people we describe as being soul, souls. Well, the Bible has it the opposite way around uh, completely in how it describes what it is to be human. Every human has a soul, and only those who are alive in Christ are spiritual. That's the living heart underneath the presenting soul. So our soul is the totality of our humanity as we stand before God. Um, Our spirit is that which is in relationship with God. And we are only in relationship with God if we have God's spirit in us to make us alive, the living marrow on the inside. And therefore, it is only Christians who are truly, capital S, spiritual And the function of God's word, sharp as it is, is to cut through the presenting soul, the exterior, the the hard bony part, that's the only bit that the rest of us get to see, to get to the marrow of the spirit, which is the bit that is full of life and feeds our vitality, and to ask what is there once we've cut through the bone. And so the word of God is is there. And that means uh, two things. That's convicting, uh, which pushes us to keep striving. It's convicting because, verse 13, no creature is therefore hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We we can't fool God. We can't pretend with God. We saw that last week. You know, God is going to keep his promises to judge, right? We, we, we We mustn't think that we can fake it with God. We cannot play with him. And that's the message today. God sees everything. He sees better than what we do about ourselves. And so let's not try to pretend to him. But it also means it's a valuable tool for us. Um, I had a good chat with Phil after the sermon last week, and he came up with various kind of follow-on questions, on, uh, you know, which were raised, I guess, by the passage last week. And one of them was, but blind spots. We all have blind spots. If we're to hold on to the promises of God, to make it uh, to the end, that, that you're not part of God's people if you're simply part of the gathered people, you're only part of God's people if you're holding to the promises of Jesus. Um, but what about those blind spots, the areas where maybe we don't know God's promises or we don't know for sure whether we really are believing in God's promises? Well, how do we handle that situation? And the encouragement last week is we have an incredible resource in the form of God's people, chapter 3 and verse 13, exhort one another daily because you can see my blind spots very oftentimes better than what I can see my own. And so we need to embed ourselves in a web of exhorting relationships 
no, no good just thinking that this, there's sufficiency to being here on a Sunday. Embed ourselves in those gospel communities, in individual relationships, so that you are close enough to be able to see my blind spots when it comes to holding on to the promises of God. But the other promise is, in this passage, is there is a tool. It, it, it could be a sword. It's very sharp. It could be a sword. It could expose us. It could, it could condemn us, right? But otherwise, it could be a surgical instrument that exposes us so that, so that here's the promise. When you come to the Word of God, it is the thing that will open you up to expose yourself to yourself. And that is a very precious thing. That is a lifeline. That is so that we see the marrow. And, and, and how do we respond when it comes to God's Word? When we meet it in the form of a word on Sunday, a word from a brother or sister who cares about it, who reaches us, who points out our blind spot. What does our heart do? What does the marrow do? Does it react in defense and rebellion and, and pushing it away? Or does it repentantly say in humility, you know what, actually you're right. I have been drifting and I do need to turn around. And that word washing over us all the time is continually doing that work. No blind spots will remain. It is a powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Both of those tools, the people of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, we're told in Galatians, to keep you going. Maybe this is a question as you come to God's Word, just a practical question. Um, I was super encouraged to hear about the, the depth of the discussion that was going on in the youth last week and kind of the opening up of God's Word. But the thing is, as we open up God's Word, are we going to let God's Word open us up? And so here's a question. Every passage of the Bible, what is God's heart in this passage? What are His promises in this passage? And then a second question. How can I orientate my heart in line with His promises? How can I turn around? How can I align? How can I go his way? Keeping going. God has given us everything that we need. The motivations for Scripture, in Scripture, for keeping going until heaven, they're multifaceted. Uh, scripture speaks of how wonderful heaven is, right from the prophets back in the day. You could tell when you read the prophets that they are not talking about the promised land and hankering after uh, uh, you know, a bit of land in the Middle East. That's not what they're hankering after. They're not even hankering after Eden. Eden. Uh, some kind of return to paradise. It is way beyond all of that. And the Bible describes it in glorious terms in, in, right at the end in Revelation. There's no more mourning, crying, pain, tears. The old order of things has passed away. That's part of the way the Bible motivates us to keep going. It motivates by saying that, that it is secure. The resurrection of Jesus has guaranteed your resurrection and that you will be in that place enjoying God's life with God. But here in this passage, well, here in this passage, the motivation is, it is everything that God has designed us for. It is my rest. There is no other point to history. The point of history and your history is to enter God's rest. To not do that is to truly be on the wrong side of history. And if the comrade sweep us is the most depressing place that Denzel has experienced, well, it doesn't compare to a Christless eternity falling short of God's rest. But then also there is the motivation of this passage. God has supplied everything that we need to keep going by his spirit manifest in his word uh, and his people, his instruments to preserve and to keep us. Why don't we pray?
Father, help us to be serious about the things which are serious. Help us, Lord, would you calibrate our fears so that we fear what is right to fear, which is to drift away from the promises that you have given us in Jesus. And therefore, to be able to live fearlessly. Lord, we thank you for the rest that remains. And therefore, today and every day, every today, would you help us to strive to enter that rest. Thank you for the gift of your word and your spirit in your people um, so that we will not fall by the wayside. And we claim that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.